All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, I just want to say it's so good to be here. Uh, been wanting this for a long time. Uh, and also with the weather, I just had my first pumpkin spice latte of the season this morning. Just uh, embracing my inner basic boy today. Um, okay, let's see, a, let's see a show of hands. Who here would say they have a high pain tolerance? Who's going to brag about that? Hmm? Okay, yeah. Uh, is anybody here going to admit they have a low pain tolerance? Who's that? That's, that's me right here. Uh, but you know who has a really terrible pain tolerance, like just totally wimpy pain tolerance, is babies. Um, they're just terrible at it. Uh, one, things, one of the things that babies hate is getting their shots. Um, so there's a, a, vi- a video that made the rounds on the internet a few years ago of a doctor who had an interesting approach to getting babies through their shots. So let's have a look. Yeah, it's like this doctor is good, but you can only be so good, right? Um, So pain is something we all wish we could eliminate. Um, We go enormous lengths to avoid it, to get through it, to forget it. Um, Some kind of pain, like getting shots, feels, you know, it's kind of trivial. Um, But there's, there's other kind of, there's another kind of deep pain and suffering uh, that's a lot harder to deal with. Um, you know, the kind, the kind of life-shattering loss that most of us will experience um, at least once in our lifetime. Things like loss of a loved one, um, societal trauma like war. This kind of pain a lot of times feels meaningless, um, which is a challenge because pretty central to uh, trying to live a life of faith is wanting meaning, right? Um, so can we find meaning in our pain and suffering? Um, or are we better off like this doctor, just do our best to distract ourselves through it, uh, or, or try anyway? So this morning's lectionary text is from the book of Job, which famously wrestles with the question of suffering. Um, and I think it can offer us some guidance in some unexpected ways, I would suggest. Um, I want to say up front, though, that um, you know, pain and trauma, they come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and I don't think there's like a single roadmap out of it. Um, also, Job is a really weird story. I, uh, and I think it's been used to advance some pretty unhelpful ideas. Uh, I actually wasn't even sure if I wanted to take this text this morning uh, because of how much of a lightning rod it can be. But the more I spent time with it, the more it started to make sense. So what happens in this story isn't a step-by-step you know, guide to responding to suffering, but I do think it can help us deepen our understanding today. So a short recap of the book of Job. 
this is a, it's told in the format of like an epic poem, right? It, it works on kind of a, on a mythological poetic plane. It doesn't have like the historical feel of other books of the Bible. Um, I would suggest that that's the best way to understand it, but you don't have to look at it that way. Um, and Job is this figure who's this, he's described as morally blameless. Uh, and he, he has a vast fortune. Um, he's respected by his community. Uh, and there's, there's this framing device in the story. This cosmic story is being played out that results in Job losing everything. Job doesn't know why this happened, but he, uh, he loses all of his fortune. The lives of all of his workers are taken from him. The lives of his children are taken from him. And ultimately, his own health is taken from him. He's left covered in, in, uh, in boils. And so he's utterly devastated, reduced to a low place. Um, and most of the story, most of the book of Job is a conversation between Job and his friends about what does this mean? You know, it's, it's the classic, why do good things happen to bad people? Um, and his friends are kind of a, like a mouthpiece of the dominant views of the time, which is that uh, the gods or God reward the righteous and punish the suffering. So if you're, if you're wealthy and successful and live a happy life, it's because, congratulations, you deserve it. Um, and if you don't live a happy, wealthy life, and if you've experienced suffering, then sorry, but you must have done something to deserve that too. Uh, which is what uh, Job's friends are telling him. You must have done something to deserve this. Um, but Job says, hang on. I didn't, though. I haven't done anything to deserve this. But the friends keep saying, no, 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 you have to have done something. Uh, if not, life doesn't make sense. Right? You have to believe that everything happens for a reason. Uh, otherwise, life has no meaning. Just accept that this is about who you are. And, uh, you know, you did something bad and you got what you deserved. But Job, he just, he just keeps coming back to, there just has to be a better explanation. Uh, he gets to the point where he is demanding answers from God. Uh, he's demanding it so strongly it's borderline blasphemous. Um, so, so Job says, I should set out my case against him, as in like a legal case, advancing any number of grievance. So what's interesting here is that Job's friends, are putting his pain and trauma on him, saying, this is about who you are. But Job is refusing to see his suffering as having anything to do with him. Um, he's refusing to be defined by it. Um, what's happened has ruptured his sense of meaning. It's ruptured his relationship with God. And he's refusing to accept that. Uh, so he's stepping out confidently, insisting this can't be the end of the conversation. Um, before continuing, I want to pause and mention that I think as a culture and as a community, I think we've come a really long way in how we understand pain and trauma. Um, a lot of us come from cultural or family contexts where we were encouraged to sweep our pain under the rug uh, or just kind of push through it through willpower. Um, and I think we are rightly coming to a place where we understand that you have to, you can't rush the healing process. You have to be patient, uh, with yourselves and with, uh, with yourself and with other people. You have to practice sympathy and empathy, create the right kinds of conditions for healing to happen. But I wonder if Job's example 
can be a small counterbalance to some of this discussion. Um, a gentle caution not to reinforce the ways that trauma can isolate us. Uh, because trauma does that. Trauma isolates us. Um, I, think, I think a lot of us can think back to a time when we've been hurt by someone and we needed space um, to heal before a rela- that relationship could be repaired. Um, I also want to put on the table that uh, I myself do not have a hard time creating space for my pain. Uh, I'm very good at embracing my pain. Uh, I'm kind of a melodramatic, emo, soft boy uh, by disposition. Um, embracing my pain is like factory settings for me. Um, as an example, I think I was seven or eight years old. I was upset at my family for whatever reason. Tried to run away from home. I made it like four blocks. Uh, and when my dad picked me up, uh, I had in my, my gatherings to go live my new life, uh, I, I brought the family photo album and I put all of the pictures that had me in it. I took, the, took it with me because I wanted everybody to forget me. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, tell me you're an Enneagram 4 without telling me you're an Enneagram 4. Um, so if I'm being honest with myself, I can think back to at least a few times um, that, you know, in my adult life, I've been hurt by people, by close friends and family, and I, I used my own hurt as a wedge, um, held on to my, my hurt maybe a little too closely to avoid that reconnection. So what, what, I'm, saying for, what I'm saying is that uh, as a culture, as we're learning to make space for healing and trauma, I think there's some of us, like me, you know, the people who are like black belts and embracing our pain, uh, who could probably take some inspiration from Job uh, and refuse to let our trauma have the last word, insist on something else. Um, and here at Vox as a community, we've been in a stage of discernment where, you know, where we are in our journey, and we've been having conversations about how we can lean more into connection and engagement with each other as a community. Um, so in, as we have these conversations, how can we bring our full selves to the table, um, our joy as well as our pain? Um, how can we carry these in a way that, that leaves us open to connection? Um, how can we be authentic in our pain, like Job, yet insist on not letting it have the last word? So the story goes on. Uh, Job says he's not satisfied with his friend's explanation, and he insists on bringing his case before God, for Yahweh himself. And God does something strange. Uh, he answers him saying, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? So basically, God changes the subject, which is it's kind of nuts. Um, and so first, the way this used to be presented to me um, was that God was sort of like owning Job, like, I made all this. You can't criticize me. Um, like, which is, let's be honest, like, that's a terrible way <laughs> to think of God, right? Like, like he's the Wizard of Oz. Uh, doesn't like being questioned, so he just like cranks up the pyrotechnics and yells even louder, like, I am the great and powerful Yahweh. Like, I don't think that's what God is doing here. Um, I do think there's a point in talking about the creation of the world, um, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, I think it's really interesting that he changes the subject at all. 
Um, Job has this very specific grievance. He has questions that he has, there are questions he wants answers to. And God doesn't say anything about it. And actually for the rest of the book, God never gives Job an explanation. Doesn't, doesn't tell him what this means. And I think this is the really hard lesson of Job. Um, that it is possible that there could be suffering that has no meaning. Uh, some suffering can have meaning, but I think, I think it's the possibility that someone might come to us in a state of grief or loss, uh, and that we might not have the right words uh, to comfort them or make, help them make sense of it. We have a really hard time with this, um, which is why I think the impulse of people like Job's friends to explain it as this is what God wants, I can understand the temptation because that might be a cruel way of looking at the world, but at least there's a logic to it, right? Um, and I would suggest that it's our discomfort with the lack of meaning, um, the insistence on there being meaning when maybe there isn't any, that can actually lead to some, some toxic ideas. Um, a few years ago, a book came out called Hillbilly Elegy. Um, it made a big splash. They eventually made a movie about it. Um, and it's a memoir from this guy named J.D. Vance, who grew up poor um, and you know, really dysfunctional home. His mother was addicted to opioids. Uh, he suffered emotional abuse and neglect throughout his childhood. Um, eventually, he worked really hard, ended up at Yale Law School, and had, had a, a successful career um, as a lawyer and a writer. And he's, he uses his story to argue the point that people in poverty, the, the problem with poverty is the so-called culture of poverty, that, that people in poverty don't need help, they just need to make better choices and work hard, like he did. Um, and now he's running for the Senate. And what it seems like he's doing is, to me, is it's like he's taking his pain, investing it with meaning, and then using that to advance ideas that I would argue are probably destructive to people in poverty. So in other words, he's weaponizing his trauma, you could say. Um, I can't argue with his experience, right? Like, it's a, it's a conversation stopper. And an interesting response to this is in a podcast called The Brunigs. That's um, Liz Brunig, who's a, a writer for The Atlantic, and her husband, Matt Brunig, who's a think tank policy writer. Um, they grew up in the Dallas area. Matt grew up really poor. Uh, and Liz experienced pretty severe emotional and physical abuse growing up. Um, and here's her response to uh, J.D. Vance's way of telling his story. This is the, uh, the wisdom I want to close with here, because I sympathize with, with, with J.D. Vance on some level, because I sympathize with the tendency to self-novelize. I'm a writer. Uh, it's, it's tempting to think of one's life in the way that you think of other people's lives. And, you know, part of the role of a journalist is you're telling someone's story in a, in a, such a way that you can, uh, you know, advance it to the reader to make a point. So very similar tendencies here, but the whole of a life, maybe there are experiences or circumstances, episodes in a person's life that are very illustrative of a specific phenomenon. But when you look at the whole of a life, a person's whole life, and especially the lives of their families, that tendency to self-novelize can really derail you. 
Because let me tell you, having grown up in a situation that was uh, pretty intense, pretty abusive, very unstable, uh, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It's bad analysis. And, you know, if I were in the situation to talk to uh, a person who's been through that and is trying to make sense of it, you know, I would just say, you know, you're focused on the wrong thing. A, the worst things you've been through are not who you are. Also, it's not necessarily the case that there was some cosmic meaning in them. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, baby. doesn't tell you anything about who you are, what you are in the world doesn't mean anything just forget it and that's how they end the episode and it's it can be unsettling to to for the way she talks about it so abruptly like it doesn't mean anything but for her it's actually this has been liberating for her it's the freedom not to obsess and look for meaning in something that probably won't give you any meaning um at vox we hold to mystery as a core value and the language we've put around this says, as a community, we lean into the mystery of Christ, leading, leading us on our bright days and in our darkest hours. This type of faith involves doubt, uncertainty, and learning to trust in the one whose name is truth and love. And I think a lot of the times when we talk about mystery, it can be really beautiful. Um, you know, like, a doctrine like the Trinity. Mystery allows us to hold it in a way that we don't, we don't, kind of ruin the beauty by trying to fit it into too many conceptual frameworks. Um, but things like pain and suffering, like what Job experienced or what J.D. Vance and Liz Brunig experienced, it's like the opposite kind of mystery. Um, it's a darker mystery. Um, and I think this is the difficult part of holding to mystery as a core value. Um, it doesn't just allow our theology to be beautiful. Um, it also means learning to accept when life doesn't give us satisfying answers, which is really hard. Um, but as believers and followers of Jesus, uh, we don't have to walk in that darkness alone. Uh, so what would it mean for us to grow in ways that allow us to accept mystery, both beautiful and dark mystery? Uh, how can we as our values state, lean into the mystery of Christ, leading us on our bright days and in our darkest hours. So, so Yahweh changes the subject. He doesn't address Job's suffering. What he does do is he talks about nature, talks about creation, um, which, again, I don't think this is God owning Job, like, uh, telling Job how awesome he is. Um, what he's doing is he's inviting Job to consider a wider view, to expand his view. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? So he's evoking the image of a builder, laboring, toiling to create the world. Then, who pent up the sea behind closed doors when it leapt tumultuous from the womb, when I wrapped it in a robe of mist and made black clouds its swaddling bands. So he's evoking the image of childbirth, you know, a, a feminine God lovingly giving birth to creation, caring for it like a mother cares for a newborn. And then here's where I think it gets really interesting. Who bores a channel for the downpour or clears the way for the rolling thunder so that rain may fall on lands where no one lives and the deserts void of human dwelling? 
to meet the needs of the lonely wastes and make grass sprout on the thirsty ground. So in the ancient world, rain was seen as a blessing from the divine. Uh, rain is here to give us financial blessing because it's an agrarian society. You're very dependent on rain. So, um, but here it says that so that rains may fall on land where no one lives. It's the idea of God blessing the world, just profusely, gratuitously blessing the world, even when there's no one there to benefit from it. It's just free generosity. Uh, God gives because God loves. And that love doesn't make sense to humans because it's bigger, it's bigger than what we can imagine. And to me, it's like God is inviting Job to step into this way of viewing things for just a little bit. Uh, as though to say that this world that God made, you can't understand how much God loves it and how much God loves everyone in it. And while you can't understand the suffering you've experienced, God has created a world of gratuitous love and beauty. Uh, that, and that won't neatly fill the space, the void in your life left by your suffering, but it is a way to show you there's so much more. There's more life to come. Uh, back in college, I went through a little breakup, except it was a, a big breakup, a uh, very big breakup. I was uh, totally heartbroken. I was probably, I mean, as, as I've said, how melodramatic I'm prone to being, I was probably pretty insufferable to be around. <laughs> uh, and I remember one time I was a complete wreck and I went to my best friend's house and he suggested we go get some ice cream. Uh, so we went to Sonic, and I remember getting a large banana cream pie milkshake, uh, because that's what you order when you've given up. Um, and we're, we're back in his room, and he's trying to talk me through it. Uh, I was just inconsolable. Uh, and at some point, I guess we both just understood that there was nothing else to say, and he just turned and worked on his computer, writing a paper or something. Um, but I stayed there in his room with him, just sobbing, uh, just crying into my I've given up milkshake, uh, like half choking between sobs and like pieces of pie crust in this, in this milkshake. Uh, it, it was gross. Okay. It was, um, and I stayed there just letting, letting my tears do their work and it wasn't weird. Well, it, it was a little weird, but he didn't make it weird. Um, he, just, he just waited me out, just let me do my thing. And I think ultimately that's what I needed. I just needed his presence. Um, there was nothing he could do to say or that could fix it or make me feel better. I just needed someone who was there. And that, what stands out to me... Uh, about the story in Job, what I come away with is that God was present with Job through this. Um, Job wasn't expecting God to answer him directly and spend so much time speaking to him, but God did. And so this, it's this presence of God that, that kind of lingers for me. And our, our place in this story, we have, we have a little coda to this story, which is the life of Jesus. And what we get to participate in through that life. 
um, the presence of God in Christ Jesus uh, and in the Holy Spirit that's in this building today, weaving our little community together. Uh, this presence of God that doesn't, doesn't eliminate the, the mystery of suffering, but it carries us through it. And when we practice and partake in this presence in the Eucharist, this meal that connects us to Christ and to each other and to the universal church, uh, this, this presence is how God is blessing us. So my prayer for us this morning is that, um, that we know this presence this morning and throughout the week. The Lord bless you and keep you.